All right, let's uh, journey to Genesis chapter 6 this morning. We're going to cover a lot of interesting ground, I believe, as we uh, start in Genesis 6 and talk about Noah's flood, the flood of Noah. A familiar story, no doubt. Um, you know, something if we grew up in church, have learned from the time that we were a kid, but we're going to look at it today uh, as grown-ups and see what we find in the scriptures and uh, some of the complications that have come about with this story and then search for some answers in the midst of that. Uh, however, before the flood, we want to start in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is a passage that is very controversial, uh, a troubling story to many, just plain out unusual for several reasons. So let's read these first few verses of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And we may not catch it at first, but we'll dive into it and see what, what we have here. In Genesis 6, of course, we've just came out of Genesis 5 with the uh, descendants from Adam to Noah, the righteous line, the righteous seed ending with Noah. And we find here in Genesis 6, 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as uh, their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men of old, men of renown. So we have an interesting passage of Scripture here because we see two phrases used, the sons of God and the daughters of men. These, this is seen in a couple of ways. First of all, in a very natural reading of it, coming out of chapter 5, we've seen two lineages of people so far. We've seen the line of of. Adam through his son Seth, which we saw was a godly line. If we notice in chapter 5, there was Seth and Enosh, and uh, through that we have Enoch and then Lamech, uh, Methuselah, we have Noah. And this was a righteous lineage of people. People began to call upon the name of the Lord. Enoch was one that walked with God. But then we see in the previous chapter, we have the lineage of Cain, and Cain's lineage was an evil lineage. Uh, we saw the Lamech on Cain's side, who was one that wanted to take 70 times 7 vengeance upon those that would come against him. And what you have set up here is the seed of, of righteousness and the seed of wickedness. And so when some people come over to chapter 6, they come and they see the sons of God and the daughters of men representing these two lines. They see immoral unions between the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain. Uh, turning their backs on their godly heritage, these men intermarried with unbelieving women from the line of Cain and produced offspring renowned for their wickedness. With the spiritual collapse of the descendants of uh, Seth, God pronounced judgment upon mankind and sent a flood to wipe them off the face of the earth. So the intermingling between this righteous line and unrighteous line produced a group of people that were very, very wicked, and that's why God sent the flood. So that's one way to look at these first four verses in Genesis chapter 6. A second way to interpret these verses is to focus on the words, the sons of God. So we have here in verse number 2, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were attractive. They took them wives. Uh, and then in verse number 4, we have this name called the Nephilim that were on the earth in those days when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children. So the sons of God, the daughters of men, produced what is called here the Nephilim, which the name Nephilim literally just means fallen ones, those who were the fallen ones. It could be in fallen into wickedness or fallen into sin, or it could mean something different. But they bore children unto them known as the Nephilim, and these Nephilim were men of old, men of renown. They had uh, stories about these men. They were men that were known. But the phrase, the sons of God here in Genesis chapter 6, in the Bible, it is almost exclusively equated with angelic beings. In Job chapter 1, we see the sons of God coming before the throne of 
God. So because the phrase the sons of God is generally understood in the Bible as almost every time referring to angelic beings, the story would go that there were literally angelic beings that came to earth and married human daughters and produced a hybrid offspring that became men of renown, these Nephilims, the fallen ones. In that context, the fallen ones would speak of the fallen angels. And while this sounds really weird to me and to a lot of people, in the ancient days it's not so much. There are other common stories found, but they're inter, intermixing between gods and, and humans. Certainly this was a deep-rooted belief in Judaism. I have here listed from the non-biblical book or non-Protestant book of 1st Enoch. Listen to what this says in 1st Enoch in the ancient Jewish writing. In 1st Enoch it says, In the generation of my father Jared, some from the height of heaven, that would be angels, some from the height of heaven transgress the word of the Lord, and behold, they commit sin and transgress the law, and have been promiscuous with women and commit sin with them, and have married some of them, and have begotten children by them. And there were a great destruction over the whole earth, and there will be a deluge, and there will be great destruction for one year. So in the writing, the ancient Jewish writing of 1 Enoch gives credence to this belief that angels intermarried with human women produced uh, this type of hybrid offspring, which was the reason for the flood and God sending the flood. So, you know, even though it's, you know, we might look at that and say that's really weird to us, uh, it is a belief in ancient Judaism. Early Christians possibly saw a connection as well. And we find a couple of verses in our New Testament uh, that would seem to indicate that angels did something very, very bad that God had to give them special judgment for. Uh, one of these scriptures is in Second Peter. I'm going to go over there and and read that real quick for you in Second Peter chapter two, verses four through six. Second Peter chapter two, verse four says, "For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment." If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed. So he gives several stories here that, seem, that, that come from the book of Genesis. You have the story of Noah and the flood, that God did not spare the ancient world but judged them. You have Sodom and Gomorrah. He mentions Lot. All of those stories are from the book of Genesis. And before he mentioned that, he says in verse number four, if God did not spare angels when they had sinned. So Peter lumps this idea of sinning angels that God cast to hell and put them in chains of darkness until the times of judgment. And that means... These angels did something so heinous that they would be bound up in these chains. Now, most Christians believe that what we would refer to as demons today would be the fallen angels that fell with Satan. Well, obviously, if that's true and there are demons today, then they obviously are not bound in hell. So Peter seems to indicate there is a special group of angels that sinned that was so heinous God put them in judgment waiting for, uh, or put them in, in chains waiting for judgment. Even though he doesn't explicitly quote per se Genesis chapter 6, with that sin and the other stories picking up with the flood in Genesis could seem to indicate that this is what Peter intended and could have been an, an ancient belief of the first Christians. Then when you, you turn over to the book of Jude, in Jude verses 6 and 7, we see something similar here as well. In Jude verse number 6, it says, And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness 
until the time of judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and cities surrounding, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So here he seems to indicate these angels who did not keep their first position, but are kept in chains, and he equates that with Sodom and Gomorrah, which fell into sexual immorality being deserving of punishment. So this could possibly indicate that this was a belief in the first church's will, that there were these certain angels back in Genesis chapter 6 that intermarried and produced an offspring, which produced what was called the Nephilim and would lead to ultimate judgment, if in First Enoch's case, a judgment of the flood. So there, and then there's other theories that these were maybe ancient kings that, that came and were produced. So there, there are several different theories there. We're not told 100% uh, what they were. Uh, to me, it makes natural sense that this could be the intermarriage of godly and ungodly. We know that there were ramifications uh, for Israelites who would intermarry pagan uh, women of other nations or women taking men to other nations. And uh, so there was a pronouncement of judgment upon Israel, you know, if, and a warning of judgment. If that happened, what would happen? So if the Israelites married uh, Canaanite women, then the Canaanite gods would bring influence upon them. So there is also scriptural evidence that uh, intermarriage between godly and ungodly is not a positive thing in the eyes of God for the sake of covenant. Uh, but then we also have this tradition between the language of the sons of God and the tradition of the ancient Jews and possibly early Christians here as well. So, I mean, I don't know what a lot we can draw from that other than just, you know, naming out those uh, possibilities there. Uh, but certainly begins the reason for the flood, whether it be this, this heavenly and human intermarriage or angelic human intermarriage, or just the increase of wickedness uh, intermingling with a godly lineage here that brought about wickedness. But nevertheless, it did bring about wickedness. So after this uh, first four verses, we go through chapter 6 in Genesis, verses 5 through 13. And in verses 5 through 13 of Genesis 6, we find here the theological uh, reason for the judgment of the flood. And that is that human sin had become so heinous that God had no other recourse but to wipe out His creatures and His creation with a flood. Uh, he must begin again His program of revelation and redemption with Noah, alone in his generation who was a man of integrity. So as we look at verses 5 through 13, I want you to notice a couple of things. This is just something I'll point out. If you remember back in Genesis 1, we talked about Genesis 1. We talked about how some people believe that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 were possibly written by two different people because of the name that was used there. Uh, one name uses, one chapter 1 uses the name Elohim. Then we come into chapter 2 and we find the name of God, Yahweh. Why would they switch between exclusively one name and exclusively another name? We talked about the possibilities there. We find a similar thing here in verses 5 through verses 13. If you take verses 5 through 8, I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, 5 through 8 uses the name Lord. It uses the name of Yahweh. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Verse 6, the Lord was sorry. Verse 7, the Lord said. Verse number 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then in verse number 9, we switch and we're using the name Elohim again. In verse number 9, uh, Noah walked with God. It's the name Elohim. Verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. We're not seeing the name Lord, we're seeing the name God. God saw the earth. Verse 13, God said to Noah. So we see in these two passages, we see one exclusively using the name of Yahweh, one exclusively using the name of Elohim. But we also see something interesting. If you look in verses 5 through 8, we find here that verses 5 through 8 goes from a negative situation to a positive situation. Notice this. The Lord saw the wickedness of man. That's a negative situation. Now, it was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him from his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So now from the wickedness we find hope. From the negative we find positive. We find this man Noah who finds favor. If you look in verse number 9, going to verse number 13, this goes from the positive to the negative. In verse number 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation, that's a positive thing. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. So now we go from the positive to the negative. The earth was corrupt, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So we find in verses 5 through 8, going from the negative to the positive, using the exclusive name of Yahweh. In verses 9 through 13, going from the positive to the negative, using the exclusive name of Elohim. Again, I don't know what that's worth, but I find that very interesting to read. Uh, But in these verses, verses 5 through 13, we find the reason for the flood. And the reason for the flood is that man had become so wicked and so corrupt that verse number 5 says that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then we find down in verse number uh, 11 that the earth was corrupt and it was filled with violence. So the inclination, the, the implication here is that the inclination of the heart was expressed through mass violence. And, and that seems to be affecting not just humanity, but the, the animal kingdom as well, that there was violence had filled the earth. So much so that, um, and the ESV doesn't translate it exactly like, um, like your King James would. In verse number 13, God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh. Um, the other translations, and there is the note here in the ESV, the end of all flesh has come before me is what some translations read. That could indicate that the violence in the earth was so bad that mankind was essentially wiping themselves out and that there would be, they would ultimately destroy themselves and nothing left. So what God would do here is basically save humanity from themselves through one family, Noah, and his sons and their family. So that God would actually preserve the human race from being totally obliterated off of the earth. And this is an act of God's preserving grace uh, working through Noah. So we see every uh, intention of the heart was only evil continually. The earth was filled with violence. So what does that do? It makes God grieved. It grieves him, and it grieved him to the point that he regretted making mankind seeing what they were doing to themselves. And this is an important aspect, I believe, of the flood, is that the flood is not the picture, and some critics of Christianity have pointed it this way, the flood is not a picture of this angry God that just wants to destroy the world. It's a picture of a God whose heart is grieved, Because he's looking down and seeing what mankind is doing to themselves. And that is wiping themselves off the map. So God, instead of the extinction of all humanity, reaches down and saves humanity and and chooses to recreate humanity through one man named Noah. So I don't think we picture here in Genesis 6, at least I don't see it that way, of this angry God who's out to destroy everyone six chapters you know five chapters after he made everyone Um, we see God's heart here being grieved and we see that also after the flood with the covenant of Noah because God's heart is not to to destroy the earth again so it's never God's intention or heart for judgment it's God's intention and heart for redemption but in essence we see here the reason for the flood and how God regrets making mankind. 
And then in verse 14 of chapter 6, we have the first instruction when God tells Noah to make yourself an ark. To make yourself an ark. Now, before we get into the ark and the flood story itself, I want to address some issues, and that's on the back of your first page. Uh, so, kind of the interpretations of the flood, um, the questions that people ask. And the more we encounter and talk with people who, number one, aren't Christians, and they may read this and they may have questions, or when you have people that go off to college and they hear different accounts than what we've heard in church and they come back and ask questions, it's good to pre-think of these questions so that we can think through them and have answers. So as Genesis' story of the flood is obviously one of the most famous stories, and like I've said before, it's you know, equated with one of the you know, children's books. In fact, just for fun, before y'all came in here today, I went into the library and got one of the children's books of Noah's Ark just so I can read that uh, again and see how different that is from what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, and it quickly painted over that everybody's going to die. Uh, that was like one sentence in the whole book and everything else was just about uh, how Noah made it through the flood and, and everything turned out okay. Uh, so it's just an interesting read versus what some of the critics of Christianity, and even some of the critical, not, not just critics, but just some of the critical aspects of this, this story. So here are some of the questions that people ask. Um, first of all, how do we read it? Do we read this as something that literally happened, or do we read this as a something figurative that is presented to us? Uh, the next question that somebody might ask is, did this really happen at all? Was there really a flood? Okay, And if there was a flood, was it a worldwide flood or is it a local flood? There are some people that believe that this, that this story is not a story that's, you know, that was a literal global flood, but a localized flood in the area of ancient Mesopotamia. So is it worldwide or local? Uh, why would, again, this is coming from some of the critics, why would a good God get angry and kill everyone on the earth except for one family? And I just addressed that issue. That's a false notion that God was so angry that he wipes everybody out. Um, what about other flood stories? We'll talk about those in a minute. Uh, contrary to what a lot of people believe, Noah's flood story is not the only story of a flood that we have in our history. Um, and then also the question is, if there was sin after the flood, because if the flood, this is a question that I had one time, if the purpose of the flood was to take care of the sin problem, very shortly after they got off the ark, the sin problem comes right back. So if God was going to use the flood to wipe sin off the map by wiping the sinful people off the map, um, why is there still sin? And did that mean the flood did not work? And God was trying an experiment, and he was like, oops, that didn't work. Um, how do we address that? We'll address that at the end probably. Uh, so, first of all, let's take a couple of these questions, and then we'll address a couple as we go through. Did it actually happen? Um, yes, uh, the flood story seems to be rooted in actual, literal history. Uh, there's good scriptural and historical evidence that a flood story, uh, that the flood story is an interpretation of an actual historical event uh, retold in the rhetoric and theology of ancient Israel. It was common practice in the ancient world to use an event or a memory of an event that, that people had, and retell it in a figurative way to communicate the message to its hearers. So uh, most people generally believe that an event called the flood actually happened because we have multiple records of a flood happening. We have multiple stories of a great flood happening. So, so yes, you know, more than likely, uh, even looking at it from a critical standpoint, uh, the flood seems to be rooted in an actual historical event. So the flood started an actual historical event. The next question is, well, was that a local historical event or was that a global historical event? And Christians and even evangelicals uh, divide on this issue. Of course, the majority would believe that this is a global flood, and we'll talk about why in a moment. Others believe that this account came out of a great local flood that happened. Um, we're not going to go into all the reasons why both of those? And there's a lot of scientific stuff. You, know, you can look up guys like Ken Ham, and you know, they even built the, the ark place out there, and they do all that scientific research. So I'll leave that up to the scientists. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a geologist. Um, my daughter wants to become an archaeologist, so maybe she can help with some of that one day in the future and help me out. Um, 
So there's a lot of scientific stuff both ways. You can read things on creationist websites that will take fossils and places where fossils shouldn't be to prove that there was a worldwide flood. Uh, other scientists, more secular scientists, would deny those accounts and say that science actually proves there was never a worldwide flood. So for me, as a Bible interpreter, I'll let science argue that uh, as far as all of those things that happen. Uh, but some believe this was a literally global flood, and some believe it was a local flood. Um, certainly Genesis, the Genesis account certainly presents the flood as a global event. And to me, that's what's most important when I'm interpreting Scripture, when I'm approaching the Scripture. The Scripture presents this as a global event. Uh, First of all, Genesis shows that all humanity was sinful, and God regretted making them all. So that just doesn't mean there was one group of people that God you know, was regretted in one area of Mesopotamia. It shows all that sin had rampaged all of humanity. Therefore, judgment would have been upon all people that had spread throughout the earth, not just in one local area. First of all, or second of all, if this was a local flood, then there would be no need to take pairs of every animal. Because all the animals in one area would be destroyed, but you can just bring them in from another area. You know, and the birds. Uh, why, why save the birds if there's going to be birds in other places that were not affected by a local flood? So it doesn't make sense why God would say to take pairs of every animal if it wasn't a worldwide flood. Secondly, the size of Noah's ark indicates a worldwide flood. Um, you don't need a titanic if a local you know river basin floods Uh, you would need something like that if there was a flood that covered the world so the size of the boat uh, indicates a worldwide flood Uh, the descriptions of the height of the water and the very descriptions of the flood indicate a worldwide global flood the fact the fact that the flood waters rose up over the top of the highest mountains would probably indicate this was not a local Flood, for we've barely seen local floods go up over the top of mountains. Uh, So again, that would indicate a worldwide flood. Also, if God promised to never flood the earth again, how do we explain all the local floods that still happen? What would be the purpose of God's covenant with Noah to never flood the earth again if floods happen every day locally around the world? So that would make not much sense Um, as far as that covenant that God made with Noah. So certainly, 100%, the biblical account is determined upon a worldwide flood because of all of these indicators. So I have no problem accepting that as fact. The next question is, after your local and global flood discussion, is how do we, what's the best way to interpret it? Um... And I kind of put out here the best method for interpreting Noah's flood is not to get hung up in those literal, figurative, global, local things. Um, because again, I'm not going to... I started reading some of the stuff on like the geology and the science and all of that, and I just got lost you know, in a lot of that. Um, and to me, that's not the purpose of why the writer wrote. And that's what I'm trying to stress as a Bible interpreter that's concerned with what the Bible is and what, is the, what the Bible teaches us, I don't think the purpose of the story of the flood is to, first and foremost, uh, record everything about the flood, even though there is a, very, a lot of detail in here. Um, I don't think that's the purpose. I think the purpose, and I, th- I've, I mentioned this with creation, I mentioned this with Adam and Eve, you know, I mentioned this here in Genesis and the flood. I believe the purpose of the writing, just as we've seen in other stories in Genesis 1 through 11, is not scientific, it's theological. So the main question to me is asking, what does this account teach us about God? What does it teach us about ourselves as humanity? And ultimately, what does it teach us about Jesus Christ? So if I'm talking with someone and they're arguing against a worldwide flood, I'm not going to get in that discussion. I'm not going to get in that argument. You know, because I think in those sidelined arguments, we miss the main heart and the purpose. And that is, number one, inherently man is very sinful. 
That man left by himself is overtaken with sin where godly influence is absent. Man is apt to do anything and everything under the sun that rebels against God. And next, I think we see something about the character and the plan of God in the midst of this flood. That even in a flood of judgment, the flood of judgment did not rid the world and rid human hearts of sin. For even the righteous one Noah, who walked righteous before God, finds himself wrapped up in a situation centered on sinfulness. So even the righteous man Noah, as righteous as he was, even after the flood, ends up sinning. So ultimately, to me, the flood leads us, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it leads us to Jesus Christ and the ultimate cure for humanity's sin, not found in our own righteousness, but found in the righteousness of Christ. So, literal, figurative, all of this, I want to interpret this theologically. What do we learn from the text? Uh, The next critical aspect that we see is Genesis is an ancient book. Um, Again, we've seen with ideas and stories that are not totally unique to the Bible. And when we saw the creation story, we saw there were many creation stories all throughout the ancient world, many of them beginning with you know, chaotic deluge of waters and creation coming out of that. And we looked at the similarities and we looked at the distinct differences that the Bible presents as God's actions in those things. Same thing it is with Noah's uh, story here. There are similarities. There are similarities between Noah's story of the flood and other ancient stories. I've given an example that we're going to look at in a moment. But however, there are many distinct differences that make what I believe the biblical account stand up far above, and then that goes for the creation account and other accounts that stand up far above all of the other stories and accounts from the ancient Near East, all of the other laws from the ancient Near East. There are distinct features of how God interacts with man, how God considers man, uh, the humanness. Uh, in, in one ancient flood story, um, the gods get irritated because mankind is making too much noise. And so they flood the earth and kill everybody because mankind is making too much noise. Um, that would... We'd have flooded our homes a long time ago with some of our kids if that was the standard of of judgment. Um, But there are other flood stories. And again, that's something as Christians we can't ignore because those questions, you know, will come. Um, So to understand this in the Noah story, we need to recognize, number one, that Israel's ancient neighbors also had flood stories that in many cases were similar to the flood story we have here in the Bible. Number two, Israel's flood story was written after those other stories. We know that for a fact. We know other ancient flood stories came before the writing here in Genesis. Um, By one count, 68 different people groups have flood stories that we have discovered in recent years. Uh, These include the uh, account in the ancient uh, Babylonian or Mesopotamian, what's called the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, probably one of the most famous of them all. So the Epic of Gilgamesh, in fact, I was kind of shocked the other day uh, when my daughter comes home from history class, learning about ancient Egypt, learning about the Epic of Gilgamesh, and I was like, I never learned about the Epic of Gilgamesh in school, so we had to sit down and watch a video on the Epic of Gilgamesh and talk about this, and we talked about ancient Egypt, and we talked about flood stories. So my 12-year-old is learning these things that nobody ever told me in all my years sitting in a church. So if I hadn't have had a little bit of knowledge in this, and she would have come to me and be like, what about the flood story in the Epic of Gilgamesh? That's just like Noah. I would have been like, what? And then I wouldn't have had a good answer. You know what happens when somebody asks you a question and you don't have a good answer? They're probably not going to believe you. They're probably not going to believe you. So that's why it's so important to know this stuff, even though sometimes it's uncomfortable and sometimes we don't understand. But there is a story called the Epic of Gilgamesh, and it's a long epic. Um, but there's one part of it where Gilgamesh is talking about this person, person named 
and this is a, not your common Wilson County name, Utnapishtian. Utnapishtian. And Utnapishtian is a righteous man who is warned by somebody, is warned that the gods, the assembly of gods in the Epic of Yogamesh, is going to destroy the earth because of man's sins. And guess what? In the story of Utnapishtian, he is ordered to build a multi-story boat with many compartments, with a door and a window. He's to cover it with pitch. He's to bring his family, and he brought a few other people into it as well. Uh, He's to bring all the species and the seed of animals and every living plant, the seed of every living plant, so that it could be protected by the flood. The flood in the Epic of Gilgamesh lasts six days and six nights, whereas the flood in the story of, in in the biblical account, is 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, There's heavy rain. The boat comes to rest at Mount Nasir. Uh, Utnapishtian releases birds from the ark, a dove, a swallow, and a raven to see if the flood waters have subsided. Of course, Noah does the same thing. He releases birds from the ark. And then finally, the waters subside when they get off the boat. Utnapishtian sacrifices to the gods and was blessed by them. So you can see the similarities. You can see the similarities uh, between the two. However, if you got deeper in the story, there's also a lot of differences in the story as well. There's as many differences as there are similarities. Uh, critics want to focus on the similarities, not so much the differences. Um, so reading something like this causes some people to believe that, well, if that's a made-up story, then Noah's a made-up story as well. Or it leads them to believe that, well, the Jews just copied um, this book as well, which is, doesn't have to necessarily be the case. But it certainly means that both Babylonian writings and the writings we have here in Genesis both recall this cultural memory of a flood and how they tell their story. And again, what it teaches us about their belief in their gods. And to me, the ancient Babylonian or Mesopotamian or Egyptian beliefs, they don't hold up when it comes under the scrutiny of the teaching about God. Their gods are far less superior. Their gods are really no gods at all. Their gods fall and fell many times. There are so many inconsistencies. You don't find that in the biblical narratives. So some people believe that you know, the creation story in Genesis, the flood story in Genesis, is actually written to correct these other stories, to show them, no, this is what you believe, but this is the one true God as He has revealed it to our people. And this is His character, and this is His purpose in all of this. So the Genesis narrative reveals the character of God, the human condition of sin, the obligation of humanity to God as creatures created in His image, and the redemptive plan. It fits into this story so much better than these other ancient stories. So, and there's so much more we could say if this was specifically on that topic, but even though there are these similarities and there are this, there's also great differences that to me, as I've studied, would show that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the accounts stand far above all the other ancient accounts. And, you know, there's actual truth. And I've read through the ancient, you know, maybe it's just my upbringing. Maybe it's because of what I do. But when I read these other flood stories, I went back and I read this. And when you read the Bible, there's something different. There is something different when you read the Bible versus the other ancient literature. I mean, to me it is. To me, there is, there is something divine. There is something truthful. There is something grounding that, you know, that, that really relates with my spirit. You know, you can read something from something else. Okay, but when you read the Scripture, I know for a fact that it is God-breathed. And I know for a fact that it is given by us, and it is divine God's Word to us today. And, that, and ultimately, what solidifies that is, reading it through the lens of Jesus, reading it through the lens of Jesus. So those are some of the questions uh, that come up, and hopefully a few of the answers to some of those as well. On our next page, we're going to briefly go over this about Noah. The main point about Noah is Noah was a righteous man, um, that Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Hebrews 11.7 says that by faith Noah 
uh, condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So just like what we'll see with Abraham, Noah believed God. And he was obedient to the word of God. And he built the ark to the specifications that God said. And Noah showed his righteous faith by his actions. Very similar to Abraham. But Noah's righteousness uh, stood above everybody else. The purpose of the flood, we've already looked at that. Um, Violence that filled the earth. Um, Starting with Cain and the first act of murder, Lamech multiplied that. And now you've come to the flood and the whole earth is filled with violence. And one quote, um, I didn't credit it, but by Brian Zond, he said this, he said, the world was so dirty that it needed a big bath. And that's what we see in the flood. The world was so dirty it needed a big bath. Uh, the facts in the timeline of the flood, you can find this uh, really beginning from chapter 7 on into chapter 8. We're not going to go through every detail of the story. of. We're probably familiar with that. Um, the ark was a big boat, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. A total deck space of over 9,700 square feet, uh, equivalent to 20 standard college basketball courts. Uh, would have been the largest ship by specifications in Scripture, the largest ship ever built until 1884 A.D. So certainly Noah was ahead of his time there. Um, the Bible says the ark was made of gopher wood. We really don't know what gopher wood is. It could be cypress wood. Um, doesn't really matter. Uh, the ark had three stories with a roof with a small opening in it. Uh, it had no steering mechanism in it as well. God guided the ark. Uh, the floodwaters covered the mountains by 22 and a half feet. With the highest mountains at 29,000 feet above sea level. That's a lot of water. Uh, one speculates it would take 300... And again, I don't think adding all this up is the purpose of the Genesis story as well. But I'll just throw it out there. Um, that it would take... 362 inches of rain or water an hour, every hour, 40 days and 40 nights, to fill the whole earth with water. Uh, That's a lot of water. And what we do find here is we find the waters coming up from the earth, and then we find the waters coming down from heaven when the flood comes. And if you remember the picture that we put out of the ancient world, the ancient world, you know, the picture was that there was this canopy that was withholding this ocean of water above it. For in Genesis 1, God separates the waters below from the waters above. So he takes this big deluge of water and he separates and he puts a canopy over it. And the connotation here is that when the windows of heaven were open, all of the water from the heavens come down and the waters uh, from, from under the earth come up and it creates this massive flood of water. Um, when we look at the chart here, our Uh, We see on day one, the flood begins. The flood lasts 40 days and 40 nights. Um, Then there was 158 days until the ark lands on the mountains, until the water's receding. Um, On day 224, uh, the top of the hills were finally seen. On day 264, the raven was sent out. Uh, 271, the dove is sent out the first time. And day 278, the dove is sent out a second time. And day 285, the dove is sent out a third time. Finally, he doesn't come back. Shows us that the earth is dry. The waters have receded. Noah and his family are safe. On day 314, it says the waters were dried off from the ground. And in 371, the land had completely dried out. So Noah and his family were on the ark over a year's time with all of those animals Uh, provided food for them. So this miraculous way of how God safely brings Noah and his family and a microcosm of creation through the flood in order to bring and recreate, repopulate uh, the earth. And there's a lot of symbolism. I should have put this in there, but I didn't. But the symbolism between Noah and the ark and Christ and how the early church saw that the ark is a type of Christ, how you know you come into the ark and you're safe, and it said that God shut the door upon them, uh, and so much symbolism there that uh, we don't have time to cover all of that. But there you kind of have the events of the flood and what happened. Of course, most of us are familiar with some of that, but that gives you a little bit of a timeline from the flood as well. On the back of that page, um, basically the flood act was an act of decreation and recreation. Genesis 1-1 starts with the deep. That the earth was a dark, chaotic place 
with nothing but water. And out of the water, God separated the waters, brought the land, made the vegetation, made the animals, made mankind, put him in there, and creation happened. Well, what you have here is what God had separated, God brings back together and destroys creation. That's a decreation. And then you see the waters subside, and out of that you find Noah, who's a picture of a new Adam, and giving him the same um, command that he gave Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So we see the same command there. So uh, this is a decreation and a recreation. The result of the flood, uh, the old world is destroyed, but the waters retreat, the earth is recreated. Both the destruction and recreation echo the opening chapters of the book to make the points clear. Noah is seen as a second Adam, the second father of the human race. And again, we just have the point there that I made earlier next, that this doesn't picture God as an angry deity, but one whose heart was grieved that mankind had made God. The end of all flesh was before him. So God destroyed the creation that was to bring about a new purge and a new start. Then finally, when we get to chapter 8 in verses number 20 through chapter 9, we find here God's covenant with Noah. And this is, other than the, the boat and the ark itself, this is the next famous picture with the, the rainbow in the sky. Um, the flood story, although the supreme example of God's judgment on human sin, also subtly reflects His persevering grace or His preserving grace. At its end... There is a word from the Lord that is not found in any other ancient traditions. These are one of the things that separates this flood story from all the other stories. This word offers a glimpse into God's own heart. The flood is seen as a measure of the grace of the living God as well as of His judgment. Now this is very important. I mean, this is very interesting. This next sentence, The very same condition which affords the grounds for God's terrible judgment in chapter 6, verse 5, God sends the flood because the wickedness of man was great and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That was the reason for the flood. And this is why I said earlier was God like, oops, that didn't work. So the reason God sent the flood was that every inclination of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually and therefore he sent the flood. Now after the flood, his grace shows in chapter 8. Verse number 21, listen to what chapter 8, verse 21 says. And when the Lord smelled the pleasant aroma from the sacrifice Noah made, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So the reason for the flood was every intention of man's heart is evil. And then after the flood, we see God's grace shine through. And you know why, what's the reason God's grace shines through? Because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So the same reason that brought the judgment after the flood is the same reason God's grace shows up on the scenes. For the judgment did not change the heart of man. Judgment did not change the heart of man. Only something else could change the heart of man. So we're left here kind of hanging. Because if the flood didn't change the heart of man, what will change the heart of man? And we kind of have here, there's another flood that would change the heart of man. And that's the flooding of God's grace into the human heart. The future eradication of sin would not be with a flood, but with a cross. If the flood was to rid the world of sin, then it did not do what it was supposed to do. So Jesus claimed to, came to cleanse and wash the hearts of people. Just like the world needed a big bath then, we need a big bath for our sin. But not a flood of judgment, but a flood of grace. So thus Jesus came to cleanse and wash the hearts of people from sin through His death on the cross, through the judgment that He took upon Him. Thus, baptism then is a picture of the flood. 
where the old you perishes under the waters and a new creation rises out of them. So Christian immersion baptism is a picture of the flood where the old creation is destroyed by the waters and a new creation rises from it. In the book of Isaiah, the Noah covenant is reflected in the new covenant. Isaiah here is talking about the new covenant. Listen to what Isaiah says. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion will I gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Verse 9 in Isaiah 54 says, This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah would no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you nor rebuke you, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion upon you. And he's speaking there, the covenant of peace is the new covenant of Christ. So he says, just as after the flood, I promise to never curse the ground again, never to strike down every living creature as I've done. He says, in the new covenant, when my blood has washed away your sin, when the old you is gone, he said, I've promised never to bring that judgment upon you, never to be angry, never to rebuke you again, because my covenant now is a covenant of peace. And just as God put the rainbow in the sky to remind of his covenant, the blood of, the Jesus, the blood of Jesus reminds God of our salvation and our redemption, that, that he doesn't bring us to a judgment seat, but he brings us to a mercy seat. For what judgment could never do, grace did in abundance. Um, I listed another quote here about impending judgment that Jesus uses to equate Noah. Um, Jesus in Matthew 24 talks about, for as the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Um, and then he talks about all that. I want to skip on to the last paragraph. The story of Noah, the ark, and the flood speaks an inspired and powerful message about judgment and grace that has instructed God's people throughout the ages about God's hatred of sin, His love for His creation. Most importantly, we see God's promise never to destroy the earth again to fully realize in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where God takes the judgment for sin upon Himself rather than humanity. Thus, through the lens of Christ, the biblical flood story proclaims the marvelous news of God's grace and love for all of His people. And to me, that's the bottom line. It's not how many inches of rain had to fall in an hour to flood the earth. You know, it's not if this is worldwide or local. It's the picture of the marvelous grace of our God. And a picture and a foreshadowing of the marvelous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who for us took upon the judgment of sin and died our death that through Him we will be baptized into Christ and His death and be flooded over with the waters and to be brought out a new creation in Christ filled with grace and a promise of God, just like God gave a promise to Noah here that He would never strike all creatures again, that He would never destroy the earth with a flood again, and it put His covenant in the sky. The blood of Jesus is the symbol of our covenant as well. So every time I see a rainbow, you know, of course, my first thought is God will never flood the earth again. My second thought is Jesus' blood still covers my sins. And what do you find? You find God on the throne in Revelation chapter uh, 4 and 5. You see Him with a rainbow about Him. And uh, what a marvelous picture. So to me, the story of uh, the flood is a story of God's covenant grace that He has with us.